Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio, sponsored by Mary Hill Winery. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Hello, Puget Sound, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I am your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, your weekend wine guy and commodore of cocktails. Uh, so pleased that you could join us this Saturday evening, 6 p.m. to 7 p.m., right here in 570 KVI. So excited also to announce that uh, our new website's up, so check us out at Happy Hour Radio. Net. If you have a questions, uh, this is an interactive show, and uh, I always uh, respond to our questions, and that's a ask at happyhourradio.net. And if you're in the Twitter sphere, we have at happyhrradio. So I'll tweet, tweet you, you tweet, tweet me, and we'll have a lot of twick and fun. Fun. <laughs> um, pleased to have uh, some great guests today. I've got uh, my pal Shelby Clark from the Cobrand uh, family of wines here in the Puget Sound, and he has um, the French wine specialist for Cobrand, Joe Signorelli, is here, and I have the greatest pleasure of talking about Burgundy today. We have uh, Louis Jadot, uh, the, the fabulous label with the Cherub of Bacchus here, and uh, we've got uh, a village wine, a premier crew, and Grand Cru Burgundy. So if you want to learn about good stuff, we, we've got it here on Happy Hour Radio. Also, good stuff is out there um, on the wine shelves right now, and that's Coral Wines. Coral Wines brand is uh, white coral, red coral, and pink coral, available at PCC Markets, and Esquin, McCarthy and Shearing, Bin 41, and uh, have you take the water taxi over to Alki Beach, go to Mackay. Mackay and Alki has got Coral Wines, Rosé, lovely stuff. And if you like Rosé, you must come um, next week, uh, June 18th, at Ray's Boathouse. Uh, it's Rosé Revival. My friend David LeClaire, uh, founder of Seattle Uncorked, is hosting Rosé Revival. I think this is in the 15th year, and it's finally, finally been revived. So excited. And if you want to get out and about uh, across Washington, State and Oregon and uh, Woodenville, of course. Um, check out Passport Number Two Sip Passport to Sip dot com. Seventeen hundred dollars in value for thirty nine ninety nine. Go to Passport to Sip Passport Number Two Sip dot com. Uh, it's a great deal. Two for one tastings. Lots of uh, special uh, private tastings and VIP tastings available for a very very low price. One card does it all. Passport to Sip dot com. So right now it's my pleasure. I'm getting thirsty. I'm looking at these beautiful bottles of red. Pinot Noir from Burgundy and Joe Signorelli. Welcome to Happy Hour. Thanks, Christopher. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to see you again. I know when we last met, I was on premise over at that private club, and now it's good to be flapping my wings <laughs> here in the mm-hmm. sunshine of this lovely June. So let's talk about you. Let's talk about how you got started into wine, and like where you're from, and you know how you got the bitten by the grape. Yeah. Okay. So I was. Uh, I grew up in Orange County, and. Um, was deciding where I wanted to go to school, and I got a, a letter from San Luis Obispo, and um, they were looking. You know, they offered me a, a chance to go to school there. And Fresno learned, State, right? No, it was a Cal Poly San Luis Cal Obispo. Poly. Oh, I see. And they said, "Come on up, learn about grape growing, learn about uh, making wine." And it sounded some, like something interesting, something new. So I decided to to kind of jump in, and had no farming background or winemaking background. Grew up more or less in the suburbs of Orange County, so it was a bit of a. Is that like the Brady Bunch? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so anyways, I went for it and really started to fall in love with, with wine and uh, making wine and all the classes up there. 
Uh, about two years into college, I had an opportunity to move to France um, in the Rhone wow. Valley, and it, so I jumped on that opportunity. The north or the sud? Uh, the north in the St. Joseph Appalachian. Uh, worked for a really small winery, Bernard Grippa. Uh, basically was able to do everything from vineyard work all the way up to bottling. Uh, lived in a small village. How does this uh, guy from Orange County find a little village in uh, the northern Rhone area to go work two years in college? It was um, random. My uh, my <laughs> mom was always hosting these inter- these international people at our house uh, for the soccer tournaments that, that were going on in Orange County. And this one English guy said, hey, I noticed you're studying wine, you're learning about wine, would you want to you know, move to France or work a harvest? And I said, absolutely. So he put me in connection with this winemaker, and uh, he took a chance on me. I knew nothing at the time, no experience working in winery. I was but you had 19. some classes, right? You had I some did. academic background. I did. I, st- I was, you know, first couple years into college, so it, um, still pretty inexperienced um, in that sense. But you had been tasting a little bit of alcohol. Absolutely, I absolutely. But when I showed up there, I told him, hey, listen, I am I just want to learn from you. I'm not here to, you know, talk about California wine. I, I really want to soak up everything this guy was was. Did you preaching. bring a bottle by chance? Did I you- did, I did. And um, we tasted some California wines blind and um, with all the French guys out there, and they all, um, when they tasted it blind, they said, this is incredible, this is amazing. But then when we, when we revealed that it was from California, um, they started to kind of nitpick a little bit. You know, they're very proud of their wines. And uh, I think they were a little bit impressed and they didn't want to give too much credit to us, yeah. but uh, I was very proud um, at the response. Yeah, so. That's an epiphany moment for them too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. They started to kind of nitpick. They noticed the alcohol, uh, but all in all, <laughs> they uh, they thought it was pretty good. Uh, so, yeah. Well, California wine is good, but we're here to talk about French wine. So yep. you're in the little village of San Joseph and mm-hmm. speaking with Joe Signorelli, who is the French wine specialist, Talking about his background, how he got started. Now we are in, uh, what year is this, 1998? This is around uh, 1999. 99, okay. Yeah, yeah. so um, yeah, it was, it was a, did the harvest up there, did everything, steep hillside vineyards, doing a lot of the um, heavy labor-intensive vineyard works. And now How do they... Do they plow those with with mules or is that no? Yeah, it's there was a you can get a track or a car up on some areas of the vineyards, but most of the time it was all done by hand. There wasn't at least when I was there at that time of the year. There we weren't doing plowing, but okay. I can't imagine them getting anything in the vineyards except for horses uh-huh. if they were to do that. So, um, but so this is all Syrah and San Joseph, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, and a little bit of Roussan, a little bit of Marsan as well. Okay, cool. Yeah, and that was one. How big was this uh, family vineyard? What was the name of it called? It was called uh, Bernard Grippa, just the the family's name. And as uh, far as production wise, not very big. I'd say probably around eight thousand, ten thousand cases. They only did a few different SKUs. Sold more or less everything in France and a little bit in Europe. I did see um, he get a score once at Wine Spectator, which I was very proud of. Um, I sent it to him real quick. So apparently, some wine does now make it to the United States. Mm. But I don't think it makes it past the East Coast. Right. And so when Joe mentioned the word skew, that is a, an industry term which uh, helps us um, understand how many brands they have out. We call that a skew. It stands for? Stock keeping unit. Stock keeping unit. So that's the kind of a, we'll call a grocery store um, number, That also for distributors. Anyway, that's what a skew is. So uh, you ended up, two harvests there? or Just one. I was there for around seven months. Um, and yeah, so came around... I think it was, I took off my spring quarter and stayed through summer and then came back at the end of summer. And how are the the fees there? 
Um, the fees. Oh yeah, that was uh, it. Was fun. Not you know, I, I lived in a village with two thousand people, uh-huh. so uh, it very wasn't very populated. I'll just leave it at that. But it was um, <laughs> it was fun. They had a soccer team for the village. I grew up oh, playing right soccer on. my entire life. Ended up making the team. Ended up making the wow. first team. And you know, would be walking through the streets during the week, and uh, a little kid would say, "Hey, Joseph, uh, good game." You know, and it was Joseph. pretty cool to get recognition out there for a sport that. Um, generally, when I was playing in California, it was just my parents who would show up. So it was, it was definitely a fun, fun part of the trip. What was the name of the team? Uh, Racing Club Move. Never Move. knew. Didn't make sense as a name for a soccer team, but hey, that's probably their their rough translation from French to English. Just they make it look like yeah. they're real international. Yeah, well, so fun. Um, how do you? And so you were there for uh, a harvest, and you had a great time. Did you bring back some wine too? They gave you some. bottles? I did. They gave me some bottles. Uh, brought it back home. Uh, drank all of it. You know, um, <laughs> nothing left remaining. But um, yeah, so brought some wines home. Was able to share them. Um, brought some style home. I was wearing really tight jeans when I came back, um, <laughs> and drinking a lot of pasties. But you know, oh right on, yeah, yeah. This is the weather for pasties too. Yeah. Don't be afraid of venturing out. It's a beautiful aperitif. Um, uh, great flavors. And speaking of great flavors, we got this uh, great Burgundy region to talk about. So um, before we get dive into Burgundy, let's talk about uh, how you got a job um, with Cobrand. So, uh, yeah, so my st- starting out with my first job being in f- at a French winery, I was really, when I came back to the United States, I finished up college, and I really was in love with French wine. I was kind of, you know, you can say brainwashed to think that it was above and beyond the best wines in the world. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. No, I, th- I don't think so. I think they're up there. Um, so when I finished school, I said I wanted to get into a job selling eventually French wine, but I had to start uh, somewhere a little bit more broad. So I worked for a distributor uh, for about eight years, um, selling all kinds of different wines, eventually became uh, more import focused, and um, then just heard about this job, and it was kind of a dream job when I heard about it. I thought to myself, I'm selling, going to be selling nothing but French wines. Um, this seems right up my alley. So about four years ago, um, like I said, heard about the position, went out for it, was lucky enough to get it, and um, so, yeah, four years and ago today. And tu français? Oui, oui. Right, très bien. Excellent. So, um, Cobrand is is a, a beautiful company. I, my understanding is that's a family owned company. Tell us about the genesis of Cobrand. Yeah. So, Cobrand was founded by uh, Rudolf Koff uh, in late ni- or early nineteen forties, and he was uh, the buyer at the Macy's in New York, which was the top wine shop wow, in cool. in uh, in basically New York at the time. And he established his great relationship with uh, Tattinger Champagne, uh, with Louis Jadot Burgundy, and a, a handful of other producers, and really just founded the import company. Um, at that time, with those small that small portfolio, and it grew over time, and really a focus on uh, family-owned wineries, uh, quality wineries, um, slightly I'd say higher end in general, uh, but really price points across the board, and just has a, a reputation for I think having you know quality-driven family-owned wineries. So Cobrand is really an umbrella group that sort of says we are now the partner with these great brands for the United States. Mm-hmm. Is that how it works? Yeah, that that's pretty much how it is. Yeah, they 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 um, Rudy was able to establish those relationships. So they trusted him with the brands, and he became the exclusive uh, producer. And um, eventually, they actually now, the family that owns Cobran, the Koff family, uh, owns also Louis Jadot, the Burgundy producer, which we'll be tasting here in a little bit. So they're they're diversified. so they have some ownership in some of the wineries they represent just to make sure that the you know just solidifies the partnership a little bit more. That's very interesting. So I'm wondering what year in the 40s this was. It was, must have been after the war when the Americans were heroes, right? The yeah. French. Oh, <laughs> viva la France. And uh, that's really cool. And um, to have enough uh, resources to actually purchase Louis Jadot, that's incredible. Yeah. I just wonder in the back of my mind if the family's going like, 
How'd you get all that money? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know what they were selling it for. They were selling it probably like four dollars a bottle, two fifty a bottle back in the forties, right? Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine that being probably less than that at the time, you know. But uh, yeah, champagne was probably two or four bucks a bottle at that time. Who knows? But uh, yeah, just I think over time, uh, being smart with their finances um, and jumped on the opportunity to basically purchase Chateau. And I think that helped the winery as well because with that investment, they were able to pick up a lot more vineyards and expand their vineyard ownership in Burgundy. So um, it's nice. It's an advantage. I think that, that one of the advantages they have is just being a little bit more secure, I guess, financially at the winery so they can deal with all these uh, low-yielding crops, which you've had in the last couple of vintages. Yeah, Burgundy's taken some hits uh, due to the uh, continental climate with hailstorms and uh, some rain, some frost, things like that, uh, which sort of damage the, the flowers and limit the um, the, uh, the the grapes. I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, speaking with Joe Signorelli, the French wine specialist for Cobrand, and uh, that's a great recap of Cobrand's uh, a store uh, umbrella. And uh, speaking of Jadot wines, how many different labels are there in the Jadot family? There's about 150 different li- different wines they make. In Jadot? Uh, in Jadot, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so there's a lot. Well, we get quite a bit of those imported to the United States. We don't import all of them. It's just too many SKUs, but uh, they give us usually some of the best properties they have. So and it's about production approximately, I'd say maybe 60,000 cases over 150 different SKUs. So, um, oh, six, that's it? Yeah, yeah. So, And that's at the village level. That yeah. doesn't include the Beaujolais village and the Macon village um, and the Puy Fousse, for example. But when we're talking about um, the village level and above, that's um, that's all they're really doing. 60,000 may seem like a lot, but with 150 different SKUs, it's really a little bit of each wine is produced. Yes, excellent. Well, um, when we come back from this break, we're going to talk about the region of Burgundy, the beautiful region of Bourgogne, and the Côte d'Or, and the Côte de Nuit, and the Côte de Bone, and sort of what makes the difference. Why they're one name and then two different regions. It's basically north and south. So uh, stick around, and when we come back, we're diving into Louis Jadot, Gevry Chambertin, uh, Bone Brisons, and Corton Peugeot, which which is a Grand Cru wine. We'll talk about the region, uh, the village wines, the Premier Cru wines, and Grand Cru wines. So stick around. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Lars Larson has the real story. Weekdays, 6 to 9 p.m., only on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Talk Radio 570 KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now, back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, welcome back. It's round two here on Happy Hour Radio, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Joe. Joe Signorelli, or Joseph as it was in uh, France. Uh, Joe Signorelli is a French wine specialist for Cobrand. And we are chatting about uh, the region of Burgundy and the beautiful uh, domain of Louis Jadot. So, Joe, um, talk about Burgundy. Let's go. We've got the region of Burgundy. It's about 90 minutes from Paris or south? Yeah, a little bit, maybe slightly further, a, a couple hours, maybe, depending okay. on the, the way you get there. But. <laughs> the GTV? Yeah. Uh, or the little roads, or the bicycle, which is very popular in France. <laughs> so the region of Burgundy, um, known for, most widely known for, obviously, Pinot Noir mm-hmm. and Chardonnay, but also known for Gamay Noir. A little bit of, well, there's some Cremants that use perhaps some Pinot Blanc, and I think there is uh, some Sauvignon Blanc here, if you go up to Chablis, which is also part of the uh, Burgundy um, um, 
region. So uh, let's talk about, we were actually talking about the Cote d'Or. So tell me, describe it for our, our listeners. Okay, so it's uh, more or less, um, you've got the Cote d'Or, which is uh, basically hills running north to south, a small little valley, and most of the vineyards, the quality vineyards are planted on a slightly ele- a, a hill, which is not extremely steep, but just steep enough to face east, uh, catch a little bit of the morning sunshine, and uh, Pinot Noir is a little bit of a fickle grape. It's very thin-skinned, so you don't you don't want something to be you don't want this grape to be exposed to the sun throughout the day. So it basically catches that morning sun and doesn't get that afternoon sun, which is going to kind of burn burn a little bit of the skin. Um, main what makes it very unique is you've got uh, you've got limestone soil, which uh, the French think is a perfect soil to plant for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and more or less a very a vineyard area which is highly um, fractionalized. Due mainly to a couple reasons. Uh, you've got uh, Napoleonic Law, which basically means uh, you own a vineyard, you have three kids, you split that vineyard up into three different little Right. Inheritance plots. is equal for everybody. Exactly. And basically, in France, you, you had any money, you actually had land. Mm-hmm. And then it goes on so on and so forth from there. So those three kids, they continue to kind of break it up. And over time, it's, uh, you know, the vineyards have been becoming over different, becoming owned by different family members. And then you also have the French Revolution. Um, at that particular time, um, they owned up all the vineyards and they sold them off to many different people whoever from the was churches it. they took them yeah they took them from the churches and then uh, basically yeah sold them off to whoever was able to purchase them at that particular time so those two factors kind of play into the fact that uh, you know when sometimes people own one or two rows of vines in a certain premier crew and that's all they make and if they don't make any wine they maybe sell it off to uh, a negociant and negociants have really promoted uh, the um, Pinot Noir or uh, Red Burgundy and White Burgundy, for that matter, for, into America. That was become, they would take these small little two-row vineyard owners and would they hey, everybody, let's get together and create a cooperative and we'll make the wine and we'll package it and you all get a blend and you all get a share. Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they've done a lot for the region. Um, they really started promoting it. The Jadots were one of the first to really expand and start exporting and really um, kind of developing the negociant kind of uh, position in the market. And uh, yeah, I think it helps out the little guy who doesn't quite have enough to make on his own. And then over time, some of the people who were selling to the, the negociant started to make their own wines as well. Um, and I think it's, uh, yeah, it's they, they've created their own still labels. And I think with production these days, so, um, with production being where it is, with all the hailstorms like we spoke about earlier, um, it's hurting maybe the, some of those domains where they're not able to make wine as much on their own and they're looking to go back to negociants because they just don't have enough to, to produce their own bottling. So we'll chat about uh, the vintages here in a little bit as we get to tasting these great wines. Um, when we think about the region of Burgundy, we basically have, um, I think it's what, 20 miles north to south? 20, 25 miles, yeah. Yeah. So And, and Burgundy is comprised of basically these little villages. When you ever see, um, for, first of all, Bourgon Rouge is what we in the United States in English say Red Burgundy. So it's Burgon Rouge or Red Burgundy. So that's the translation. In the village or in the region of Burgundy, we have basically um, regional wines. It just says Burgundy. Yeah. More or less a blend of all um, grapes grown from anywhere in that area. So anywhere in those, that 25, 30 mile range, they're able to uh, blend those grapes together and call it Bourgon Rouge. Generally, um, nice wine. but uh, very affordable, easy to Yeah, yeah. It's basically everything that's outside of a village. Or sometimes they'll blend some of that village stuff in. So when we mm-hmm. get to the village, we're really talking about the communes of uh, Burgundy. And uh, that starts with, uh, um, in the north is the, was it? Fissin, uh, Fissin. Yeah, Fissin. Yeah. Marcinet, Fissin. Yeah, uh, yeah, right? exactly. And then um, Gevry would be your first kind of decent size village. Right. It's Gevry, Chambertin, then it's... Um, 
Moray, Moray Saint Denis, Chambon mm-hmm. uh, Moussigny, um, Echezo, and uh, so on and so forth from there. As right, then we get down to the the uh, the town of Bone, which kind of starts being, being the the region for the Côte de Bone. Mm-hmm. Um, Dijon's the region for the Côte de Nuit, and Bone is the co- region for the Côte de Bone. And so basically, in the North region, the Cote or excuse me, the Cote de Nuit, we have basically red wines with a few great white wines. Mm-hmm. But in the south, in the Cote de Bone, we have lots of white wine with a few great red wines. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about um, the Premier Cru vi- vineyards and what makes the difference between uh, a village wine, a Premier Cru wine, and a Grand Cru wine. So it kind of has to do with, again, where they're located on the slope. Uh, village wines tend to be a little bit lower on the slope. And uh, as the as erosion kind of affects the hillside, more of that topsoil falls down to the bottom, has a little bit more clay into it, not quite as much limestone. So that's going to be more or less your village. Uh, mid-slope, there's going to be just the right mix of limestone and uh, topsoil. That's going to be where most of your premier crews and your ground crews are. And then as you go above to the top of the slope, not quite enough topsoil there, so you get kind of backed down to your village-level wines or some of the premier crews. Yeah, but, so there's a sweet spot in that hill. Exactly. Because uh, basically it's like uh, my head, there's no hair on the top. <laughs> <laughs> but I got some down mid-range here. And that's what makes it sexy, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Jevry Chambertin has been one of the, the hallmark villages. I mean, it's it's renowned throughout the world, as is Nuit Saint George. But when we talk about uh, Grand Cru wines, um, there are just seven Grand Cru wines in certain villages. Or how many? There's 23 Grand Cru wines in, in uh, Burgundy. There, I think 32. 32. In, that's in, it. Yeah. I had a dyslexic right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Corton is is really no, well known as a, as the giant hill of Corton, mm-hmm. named after Charlemagne, who mm-hmm. was the king of France at the time. And and Corton, the the story I have it here, the romantic story is that uh, Charlemagne had a huge white beard, and uh, he was always drinking his red wine. But there's a very special white wine in that on that hill. Yeah, yeah, Corton Charlemagne. So his his beard was getting stained from all the red wine, and his wife basically said, you know, I hate the way that looks on you. Uh, you know, plant, do, get rid of it. So Can he said, okay, that? fine, yeah. So he replanted these vineyards to white wine, and that was um, so uh, apparently how Corton Charlemagne came about, the famous white wine. So yeah, if it's planted to red, it's called a different, for example, Corton Puget, the same vineyard. If it's planted to white, would be called Corton Charlemagne. So Yeah, so just a little difference on the... Um, basically, there's a few uh, white Grand Crus in Burgundy. Um, mm-hmm. You can say that from Chambon um, Mousigny. He has uh, Le Mousigny white, I think, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So very cool. And um, when we talk about vintages in the region... Um, Let's say, go back to 09. 09 in Washington State was a beautiful summer. It was really warm. Um, and then 10 and 11 were cool. But in Burgundy, 9 was hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, 10 was perfect. Yep. 11 was quite perfect, too. Mm-hmm. And then what happened in 12 and 13? 12 and 13, it was they were hit with um, almost any possible um, problem you can have when you're when you're a vineyard owner. So they uh, they basically had uh, delayed flowering, so poor weather at um, at uh, flowering at bud break and that really limited the amount of clusters you were going to have on the vine from the get-go and then uh, you know you fast forward to the middle of june july there was a big hailstorm in july so the little bit of grapes that started to develop at that point were also cut back a little bit so then you're now moving into august and so you're these these vineyard owners are probably you know kicking themselves praying to god like why why us what's going on here and uh more or less uh so the little bit of fruit they did have though was um was turned out very well because August in 2012, 
uh, was warm and dry and perfect. So the vine was able to concentrate all this incredible flavor into just a small amount of berries. So it's a it's a very I would say not not a typical Burgundy vintage because you've got incredible extraction, really dark colors with the 2012s, um, a great concentration of flavors in the in the whites. Um, so it's just the only downside, unfortunately, was just there wasn't a lot of it. Uh, producers on average, I think, were down 40, 45 percent of what right. they typically make. Um, so it was um, just, you know, the only, like I said, the only, the only downside is is trying to find it, unfortunately. <laughs> well, we have this in Seattle, right? And that's uh, you can find that at all the great wine shops. When we we taste these wines, we'll we'll zero in on where to pick these up. Um, but the 2013 vintage was quite similar. Did it have uh... quite similar? The only problem that didn't exist in 2012 was uh, was botrytis, and guess what? That showed up in 13. So as tough as 12 was, 13 um, you could say was even slightly more difficult. A lot of the same problems: delayed flowering. Uh, poor weather during during flowering. Another hailstorm came in July. The only difference was um, it was slightly cooler in that August September time frame. Uh. So it it kind of Mother Nature has a way of balancing itself out. If there was not that limit in yield early on, um, I'm not sure if the wines would be as uh, would have maybe achieved perfect ripeness later on. So it kind of ended up balancing itself balancing itself out. So I would say 13 um, maybe a little bit uh, more classic, a little bit maybe higher acidity, a little bit more minerality. Mm-hmm. Um, a great expression of terroir. The terroir really shows through in the wines in 2013. And uh, I'm excited about it. Somebody I had read somewhere compared to 2010. That's a that's a bold statement because wow. 10 was such a fantastic vintage. Up and uh, down, all the yeah. all the levels of wine, all the levels, all all the colors. Um, when I mention that, people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like I think it's a bold statement. So um, we'll just let the wines <laughs> I think speak for themselves. I'm excited. The 13s I've tasted. Um, I'm very, I'm very pleased with. So I think uh, as those wines start to arrive in the market, uh, hopefully people who drink them think the same. Well, I'm excited to taste the 2012. So when we come back from this break, we're going to dive into Jevry Chambertin, uh, Bone Brisans, and Corton Puget, which is a Grand Cru wine. Speaking with Joe Signorelli, the French wine specialist for Cobrand. And if you do like wine, you got to get out there for Rosé Revival this week. Ray's Boathouse, uh, you'll have a chance to taste coral wines as well. SeattleOnCork.com. That's June 18th at Ray's Boathouse. Got to see me. I'll be there. It'll be fun and we'll be pouring you some pink. So stick around. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. The home of the great one. Mark Levin. Weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. Talk Radio 570 KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, it's round three. I'm time for a beverage. Uh, we've got Joe Signorelli and the lovely Louis Jadot family of Red Burgundy in the studio here. Jevry Chambertin 2012 Bone Brisant, which is a premier crew wine from Burgundy, from the village of Bone. It's also 2012, and the Corton Puget, which is a, a Grand Cru vineyard. So right now, I've got a little uh, Jevry Chambertin in my glass. So Joe, tell me what I'm supposed to taste. So Jevry Chambertin, uh, northern village, cool climate, um, some iron in the soil. So the wine basically has a little, a lot of minerality to it. Uh, it's a term you're going to hear a lot when people talk about Burgundy. Um, this wine, medium-bodied, uh, some nice, maybe some leathery tones in there, a little bit of fruit. Um, all in all, though, a pretty, uh, pretty concentrated, nice color on it, and. Uh, like I said, a nice medium-bodied wine with, you know, pair nice with with any sort of, you know, wild boar, which which tend to run around in the vineyards. <laughs> any sort of wild boar. Yeah, if I you could it. find it. Um, but yeah, all in all, it's. Uh, I think it's a nice wine, a nice vintage. So. 
Well, tasting this wine, I, I definitely get that there's a darker, um, a more extracted, concentrated flavor in this Burgundy. My first wine of the day, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I've waited all this long. You know, it's 6.30 is happy hour. But um, great structure. You've got bright acidity here, but the, the tannin is more um, developed. The tannin is more like a, a warm robe. It just kind of wraps that core of fruit, which is really dark, with uh, just hints of bright cherry, but more of the darker, dried black cherry and, um, I'm going to say black raspberry, but mm, let me take another sip. <laughs> you sipping it too? No, I don't have a glass. I have to, I have to uh, help myself. Here. Okay. So Jevry Chambertin is a village in the um, Cotonoui. So this is kind of fun. We have a, a red wine from Cotonoui, Jevry Chambertin. We have a red wine from uh, the village of Bone, which is in the Cote de Bone. Both 2012. It's quite interesting to see how they contrast. Um, great flavor. Nice balance. The finish here is just about, just over medium. I think this wine might need just one more year in the bottle to sort of allow all that complexity to develop in the, in your glass. Um, but it's a very fresh wine right now. Mm, well balanced. Uh, it's really delicious. I'd almost venture to say it's got some new world polish on it. There's something less textural from the earth terroir side in this wine. This has more ripeness of fruit. I guess that must be what it is. The the 12 Jevry? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a characteristic of the vintage. I think it's a it's a nice vintage and, and for that reason to to maybe introduce someone who's not incredibly familiar with Burgundy, uh, kind of start them off with something like from the 12 vintage just because it has that concentration, that almost little bit of new world um, style into it. Yeah, good choice. And I imagine this runs in the 40 to $55 white range? 55. Yep. 55, yeah. Okay, that's, um, but you just, I mean, this one and a half ounce in my glass, it's pervasive, it's expansive, it's concentrated, and it's a lot of flavor, so drink this slow. I almost want to say drink this out of small glasses, you don't use the big readles, and next thing you know, the bottle's <laughs> gone, and you're like, oh, mm -hmm. well, that's okay, we got small glasses here, and we got big bottles of bones, so baby, tell me about this Bresson. So, Bone Bresson, uh, Premier Crew, it's located in the northern section of Bone, and it's a little... In that area, there's a little bit more sand in the soil, uh, makes the wines a little bit more elegant. So a little bit more finesse, uh, slightly lighter color, um, not super tannic, not big, bold, and powerful like, say, something from the, the southern part of Bone would be. Um, this particularly is one of my favorite. I like that style. I like the elegance to it. It's got a, a little bit of, you know, some nice floral characteristics, a little bit of rose petal. It does have some fruit, but just a, a more delicate Bone Premier Crew. I agree. This uh, wine is definitely more elegant, elegant on the palate. Um, Textual-wise, it has the... With acid comes tannin. I think when acid sort of um, elevates the perception of tannin, and likewise tannin and acid, just because it's, it's the opposites from bitter and uh, sour. So this wine... More spectrum of red fruits here. We're definitely in the the red, um, pink um, to dark red flavor profile. The spectrum mm. it tends to be more earthier. I think that's you can almost taste the minerality, the sand between some of the limestone or the the, the rock up here in Jevry Chambertin. Mm -hmm. uh, very delicate wine. What is this run? Same, same price, around 55 Bone's got great value for their Premier Crew. So yeah. generally, you can get a Bone Premier Crew at the same price as a, a village wine from, say, Gevry Chambertin, Nuit Saint-Georges, or Pomar. Yeah, definitely more delicate style. I think they have, what, 44 Premier Crews in Bone or something? Yeah, quite a bit. Some people say too many. Um, that may, had to do with the guys who decided which vineyards in Bone or which vineyards in Burgundy were going to get Premier Crew status. Uh, they all happened to live in Bone, and they all happened to own a bunch of Bone Premier uh, Bone vineyards. So they <laughs> decided to give themselves a lot of Premier Crews um, in their own backyard. So, you know, I'd say, yeah, 
thankfully, we don't get um, Jado doesn't produce any of those ones that are considered lower tiers, so um, we get you know the top top notch bone. And how crews. many premier crews from Bone do you produce? That's a good question. From Jado, uh, probably my guess maybe fifteen to twenty. So if we were to, to tell one of our guests, or as a sommelier, we'd say, guess, well, we've got this great Burgundies. They're both two, two same vintage, 2012. Every Chambertin gives you more power, more structure, more concentration of flavor. And Bone Brisons, from the wines from Bone, give you a little more elegance, a little more style, finesse, just like you said. So that's a great way to say it. Power in the north, a little mm-hmm. more elegance in the south. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you said, a little bit more maybe red fruit. Bone's known for their, their fruitiness of the wines, too. Love it. Delicious. I'm getting hungry. Um, well, now it's time to uh, taste Corton, Corton Puget. Tell me about Corton. So Corton is the hill of Corton, and there are uh, Corton, like five, uh, uh, what do you call, Ludis there? Mm-hmm. Le Reynards, uh, Le Roi, um, Puget, and uh, well, Cor- just Corton, of course, but also Corton... Uh, Le Charlemagne. Le Charlemagne, that's yeah. it. So, yeah, Corton Puget, I alluded to this earlier, that basically um, if you were to replant this Corton Puget to Corton with Chardonnay grapes, it would become Corton Charlemagne. And that's what most people have done. Uh, you can get more money for Corton Charlemagne. Uh, however, Jadot, really, it's just one of their first vineyards they've owned, and they have they have a, an incredible uh, lineage of producing this wine. It goes back almost 100 years. So they wouldn't want to break that up just to, to make Corton Charlemagne. They also have other vineyards that produce Corton Charlemagne. So um, there's, a I think, only about three producers that are still doing a Corton Puget, and, and Jadot's one of them. Pretty powerful wine. Obviously, you're in the Grand Cru level here. Less than 2% of all the vineyards in Burgundy are identified as Grand Cru. And just big, robust wines. Uh, if you, Most people say you shouldn't even touch this wine for until five years, um, and it can age 15 to 20. So a little bit more power, concentration of flavor, more tannic, um, all those things that really help in a, a wine age. A little bit more structure. Uh, Jadot treats their wines exactly the same. So there's about 40% new oak in all these wines. And the only difference is maybe the time in oak. It's a couple months longer with the Grand Cru. So you may pick up a little bit more oak, but over time that'll really integrate with the wine. Wow. Um, when you said powerful wines, this is definitely, this is a youthful wine. It's almost uh, still in an eggshell. You almost need to wait for this baby to hatch, and I think that'll take some time. The power, the grace, the elegance, the um, the firmness of this particular uh, red burgundy is is dramatic. Uh, in contrast to the Jevry Chambertin and Bone Brisons, this wine does have power. It almost is, is just too big to really open up yet. We need to sort of put this out in the sun or, mm-hmm. you know, let it get some, some air, and um, I would recommend decanting this. Mm-hmm. Yep. And interesting on the hill of Corton, I believe when I re- recall it, you can see some of the limestone areas on that hill, right? And that gives you an idea that Chardonnay grows well in limestone. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You can see some of those uh, some of those little strips that run through the vineyards. And there is a strip that runs through Jadot's Corton Charlemagne, and it really gives the nice uh, nice minerality to it, nice acidity. And the Jadot's vineyards, the Puget and the Charlemagne, are right kind of on that southeast-facing corner, uh, which was the original Corton Charlemagne Appalachian before it started to kind of expand and wrap around the mountain. So a real real nice plot that Jadot's got for their Puget and their Charlemagne. And so all these Grand Cru villages were first identified really by the monks who tended the vines and all they had to do was you know make wine pray and and write they were the educated so they took notes and over every year 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 they would see that certain plots 
we had the best wines. And so that's really how it got started. And um, when we think about the terroir of Burgundy, we're really talking about ocean seafloor here, which is just the, you know, the forming of the earth through the years, the tectonic plate activity. There's oceans that have risen and, and land that has fallen. So we have all this subcontext of layers of, of uh, sand and seashells and minerals. And from 700 million years ago to 16 million years ago to 35 million years ago to 15,000 15, years ago. So lots of activity. That's what makes... Um, well, Burgundy's so complex, and that's mm-hmm. what makes the wine so complex. Plus, the vines there have been grown since the 300 B.C., right? Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, very complex soils, like you said, so that makes it why one vineyard, one producer gets $3,000 a bottle, guy next door, you know, <laughs> maybe 100 bucks a bottle. Across which sounds, the street, anyway. Yeah, right? it's bizarre to see, uh, you know, how close these vineyards are, how close these areas are, yet how different they are. So all those those climatic conditions kind of... Um, are the reasons behind that. Fantastic. Well, so final price, Corton Puget, I can find it at uh, Esquin or... 120 bucks a bottle. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it's considered one of the best values for red Burgundy. Uh, You compare anything from the hill of Corton to anything in northern Burgundy, and it's much... uh, The reds are much more much more affordable. Well, that's a very special bottle of wine, and it's great to have that history. That's what I love about European wines, that there's this sense of history. And in Washington Strait, I love it, too, because we're all families and friends, and, and so we get a chance, but we're still learning. You know, mm-hmm. we need, uh, we started in the third century B.C. We we haven't nailed. <laughs> we're doing a pretty good job. When we come back from this break, we're going to continue our conversation about Cobrand and with my friend Joe Signorelli, French wine specialist. So stick around. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. He's live. He's here. Sean Hannity. Weekdays, noon to 3, only on Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle Sommelier, Christopher Chan. All right. Round four. This is a party today. I've got Joe Signorelli, the French wine specialist for Cobrand, and we're enjoying some beautiful Bourgogne Rouge, uh, Jeveux Champetain, Du Me et Du. Uh, or was it Dues? Owns Dues, right? Dues. Do me a Dues. Uh, the Bon Brisson and the Corton Puget, all 2012. I'm looking at the family. If you have a chance to try, you want to try Great Burgundy, um, reach out to Maison Louis Jadot. From the whites to the reds, uh, from the uh, village levels and Premier Crews and Grand Crews, they have a great selection of wines. I mean, you want some great Chardonnay. This is the really the birthplace of Chardonnay. And it's Chasson Montmarchais or Pouligny Montmarchais and Merceau. Those are all three communes down in the Côte de Bonne. And you get to Jevy Chambertin and Louis Saint-Georges. You're in the north. Um, but there's one great village in the south, Pomar, mm-hmm. that makes fantastic, long-lived, ageable, structured, hearty wines that really was one of the first. Uh, again, next to Louis Saint-Georges, that was really one of the, the strong wines in the world. So got to check out these uh, Maison Louis Jadot wines. They're available at Esquin and uh, McCarthy and & Shearing and all your fine wine shops. But um, I understand that Cobrand also has a great champagne family. They do. They do. Uh, we're lucky to be the importers of Tattinger Champagne or Tattinger Champagne or Tattinger Champagne. Tattinger. However you want to pronounce it, I, I get that question a lot is how do you say it? And I've asked the owners at the winery and they say they really don't care. Uh, they're okay with however tomato, you want to say tomato. it. Tomato, tomato. Yeah, exactly. 
With champagne. So um, champagne obviously made from the same kind of grapes. We're talking about Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Yeah, yeah. So made from Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Tattinger's house style um, is to be a little bit more Chardonnay-based. So they use a higher percentage of Chardonnays than most of the other uh, houses do in their in their Brut Non-Vintage, about 40%. And they feel that gives the wine a little bit more minerality, a little bit more acidity, um, pairs better with food, and also has the ability to age a little bit longer. So that's kind of their little, little style they choose to, to go with. And Tettinger, um is a great producer who has uh, several different levels of their, their champagne. We have their house style, then we have a um, Premier Cru or a Millezime mm-hmm. Reserve. Or Tell me about the levels of Tatanger. So, yeah, we've got the Brut La Francaise, which is the house Brut non-vintage. And that's, um, you know, the idea with that is to be consistent. So 30 years in the past, 30 years in the future, that's really a, a, a signature house style. That's what they're trying to show you there. Uh, the next tier up would be the Vintage. Uh, we're currently, I believe, on 2006. Uh, they also make a Grand Cru called Prelude. Um, and then above that would be uh, the Comte de Champagne, which is their Tete de Cuvée, uh, Blanc de Blanc, all Grand Cru. And that ages around 8 to 10 years in the cellar before it's released. Um, sees a little bit of oak, but not much. It just gives a little bit of toasty characteristic, a little bit of vanilla. Is from that, that new oak? I mean, they're using a little yeah, touch of new Yeah, it's about 30% of the of the. Only a small percentage of the wine goes into oak, and of that percentage that goes into oak, Only about 30%, 30% is, new. is new. So it's yeah. it's really not uh, an oaky style of champagne like some other producers are known to make. But uh, yeah, it just uh, it's just kind of a hint. It's kind of there in the background. That's that's great. I I love the just a touch of that nuance. That's um, some neutral oak, and even a touch of the toasty oak provides great great complexity to champagne, and that's what champagne is all about: elegance, complexity, and uh, fun. If you're drinking champagne, you're probably having fun. I mm-hmm. hope. And when you talk about Grand Cru's and champagne, it's much like Grand Cru's and Burgundy. So people have identified different hills slides or hillsides and slopes and vineyards mm-hmm. that are um, some of the best. Actually, in this version of champagne, they've identified villages. Yeah. So what they've done is they've kind of identified villages. In the past, how they came up with that rating of Grand Cru was they, they identified the villages that were getting um, selling their champagnes at the highest prices, and they established those as Grand Cru. And then from there, you know, a village was getting 90% of what it was selling you know, versus the Grand Cru, and that would be considered Premier Cru and so on and so forth. So had kind of, it had obviously to do with the quality of the vineyard. That's the, the, the heart of it all. But the, the basis of the the... AOC or the laws was based more upon how, what they were selling and at what price. So much like the classification of 1855. Exactly. <laughs> much more similar to that, I think. But um, but yeah, all in all, Grand Cru vineyards uh, rarely come for sale in Champagne. Uh, they're some of the most expensive uh, vineyards in the yes. world. And uh, another big aspect of Champagne is is the aging of it. So uh, Brut La Francaise is the entry-level Champagne from Tattinger, and that ages around three and a half to four years in the cellar before it's released. So you couple that aging with the cost of the vineyards, and that's really, really why champagne tends to be a little more expensive. Yes, it takes a lot of time, a lot of hands, a lot of people, and um, that's what makes it so great, though. Someone took the time to, to fashion this bubbly wine for you, and then it's um, exotic and uh, sometimes erotic. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joe Signorelli, so fun to have you on the show. Great to uh, see you outside of the uh, on-premise world, and thank you so much for sharing uh, Gevry Chambertin, uh, Bon Brisons, and Corton Pouget. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Christopher. Good time. So get out there and check 
check out uh, it's Burgundy. This is Burgundy season with salmon. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show, uh, learning about a little bit of Burgundy and a touch of champagne, and uh, that is the good life we live here on Happy Hour Radio. If you want to enjoy the good life, I uh, well, I invite you to grab a bottle of Coral Wines, Coral Wines Rosé and Coral Wines White. Uh, nice, tasty blends, perfect for summer. Kind of chill it and unscrew that cap and then drink it. Good stuff. I'll see you on June 18th for Rosé Revival at Ray's Boathouse and SeattleUncorked.com. Remember, folks, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers. Cheers.